We'll do it live! You are listening to the AMC Report with your host, Ryan Dawson. All right, this is the Anti-Neocon Report. I'm Ryan Dawson. My guest today is Thomas Goodrich or Michael Goodrich as he goes by sometimes. You know, I get all the black sheep on this program and, and this guest is no exception. He's written a number of books, historical books. He's a historian. He's been a writer for 25 or 26 years and he's written about everything from the Indian Wars, Abraham Lincoln, um, what happened to the South post-Civil War, and he's written about World War II and that's going to be the topic today. He wrote a book which is now an, also a film called Hellstorm and it is about what happened, mostly what happened to Germany at the end of the war and after the war as more Germans were killed in peacetime than actually during the war. Now this is not to exonerate anything that Nazi Germany did or any crimes like that. This is just basically to point out how equally horrific crimes were done by the Allied powers as well to wipe away a little bit of this American exceptionalism. And I just, I got a, a small rant and I'm going to bring him right in. But I just would like to say, you know, people sometimes they say, are you a Holocaust denier or something like that? Anybody that tries to revisit World War II gets painted like they're a, a crazy uh, Nazi. And Nazi, of course, in our lexicon is the epitome of evil. I don't deny Holocaust, plural. The problem is I also acknowledge the Holocaust of Hamburg, of Dresden, of Frankfurt, of Nagoya, of Tokyo, of Kobe, and the murder of millions in Vietnam and North Korea, Iraq, the Congo, etc., and the colonization of the Americas, the Oceanic States, and much of Africa, and the tens of millions who starved to death or were worked to death under Communist China and the USSR. And yes, the Axis uh, raped and murdered and imprisoned people, but about one one-hundredth as much as the Allies countries have done and have done for centuries and continue to do today. And Japan and Germany have not fired a shot in 75 years, so maybe if we understood the horrors and atrocities of France and the United Kingdom, America and Russia, we wouldn't be so much hell-bent on death and destruction today. Instead of the word Nazi being the epitome of evil as it's become the state religion, why not the word colonizer? Colonization continues today. The Israelis do it openly, ethnically cleansing Palestinians. And yet the stigma is not there. It's only there when you lose a war. The winners write the history. And that's why I think this book and this film, Hellstorm, are so important because revisionism and World War II is one of the most important topics in politics today and history today. We cannot allow the winners to write the history. We have to have history from the losing side because World War II is used to justify every war after it. And that's why my guest today is taking, and he's going to get a lot of flack. I'm sure he's got a lot of flack for writing about what he's written about. He has done the task of digging up and talking to eyewitnesses and giving their accounts and giving the report about what happened to Germany, the side we never hear. Thomas Goodrich, welcome to the program. It's good to talk to you. I'm excited about this. Sorry for the long well, introduction. <laughs> no, right. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for uh, thanks a million for that beautiful introduction. I wish I had written it myself. It's um, I, it sort of sets the table, doesn't it, for our talk? Yeah. Well, I had to say etc. because I couldn't even name all the cities that were burned down or countries that have been invaded. <laughs> but... It's true. It's so true. And I'm glad you also pointed out something. This is not about the Holocaust, folks. If you want to, if you want to learn all about the Holocaust or the winner's version of World War II, just visit any library, watch any uh, World War II documentary on TV, uh, read any article, any news, any newspaper on there World are War II. There museums for it. 
and museums. And you're going to get the uh, official narrative, that is the winner's narrative on the good war, so-called good war. This is not about that. We're talking this is a, this is not about what the Germans did to the world. The book and the movie and our talk today. It's not about what the evil Nazis did to the world. It's about what the world did to the Germans. This is the first book and the first movie that's devoted to nothing but what the losers saw. Their version of losing this war. And that's what it's about. It's about the, the darkest and best kept secret in world history, by the way. Never in history have so many people been murdered. Never in history have so many people been raped. Never in history have so many people uh, been tortured. Never in history have so many big people been enslaved. And yet never in history have so few people known about this. That's what we're talking about here today. It's uh, about so many crimes that it's, it's a little bit like Ryan talking about, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, okay, allied terror bombing, fire bombing of uh, – German cities and Japanese cities also, but that's uh, that's one of many crimes we talk about. So I'll just say etc. And we, perhaps we'll have time to talk well, about I some of these. I think it's vital too, though. In the, is the the language is very important, and what how it's written in Hellstorm. I won't say poetic, but very detailed and graphic, and that is absolutely vital because too often today, uh, especially on televised media, they control the lexicon and they they use things in terms of just statistics and numbers. So if I if I said two million people were killed in Vietnam, all right, that is a fact uh, around, I mean, millions of people were murdered in Vietnam. That's not considered a Holocaust, though. It's considered a police action. And it's just, oh, yeah, well, whatever. That was a bad war. So millions. But you don't get the effect because we're not seeing the museum full of hair and shoes and, and, and pictures of dead bodies and things like we do for what, what the Nazis are accused of doing. The film isn't there. The emotion isn't there. The details aren't there. But in Hellstorm, people have heard that Dresden was bombed, probably more so than other cities. And they go, oh, yeah, that was bad. But I don't think they have a, their head around it completely. And they, it is necessary, I believe, to have the graphic details of how people were burned alive, raped, tortured, etc. It, it's necessary to kind of break that mental... Uh, shield because we too often talk about wars and deaths in terms of numbers and we're not really humanizing the people and the victims and I, I'd actually like you to if you I, just, I know it's hard to do but if you can describe a little bit what happened to people in in German cities with the RAF bombers and the American bombers what it was like on the ground Okay, let me first preface with what I'm going to say with this um, about the nature of the book, how the book was actually created. The book, this book is um, a first person you are there approach. It's it's immediate, it's timely, it's hopefully up close and personal. It's deliberate too also. I will say that because I knew I would take a lot of flack, a lot of criticism from the usual suspects. And I know how easy it is to kill the messenger. It's being ha it happens to anybody like myself who tries to um, postulate with a, with an other with an contra narrative. And so I thought it was very important to allow the people to do as much talking in this book as possible. And the movie that Kyle Hunt has made that's mirrors, adheres almost word by word to the book itself. Um, it's important because you might kill me, the messenger, or Kyle Hunt, the filmmaker, but it's almost impossible to kill the message. 
when it's in the words of the people themselves, in the words of people who suffered through the Allied terror bombings, terror bombings, not, not saturation bombings, not carpet bombings, not area bombings, terror bombings. That's what the people below called it, terror bombing. A deliberate it's also attempt the to collective kill. punishment of the people for what the government's doing. Yes, it's a deliberate attempt to kill every man, woman, and child down below uh, through bombing raids, through firestorms. It's a deliberate attempt. Uh, late in the war is when I begin. The the subtitle of the book is um, the destruction of, or excuse me, the death of Nazi Germany, 1944 to 1947. 44 to 45, of course, that's one year of war left. By 1944, there were very few military targets left in Germany. And certainly the cities had been bombed uh, until they were just a shell. You've seen the pictures of the cities, what they look like. So these continued terror bombing raids are for no other higher purpose than just to kill as many refugees and as many women and children as they possibly can. Well, Churchill and, uh, had a plan to actually drop poison gas to wipe out true. The, even the remainder that he hadn't been able to burn to death. He wanted to poison them with gas. And I think the only reason he, he was talked out of it is that the Germans had their own chemical weapons that could have been dropped on English cities. That, yes. that was something he wanted to do. Yes, uh, and you're, you're right. Uh, to, to my knowledge, there was no poison gas in World War II used anywhere. And... Um, no thanks to the Allies, because yes, Truman, I'm sure FDR would have signed on to that immediately. Uh, his Jewish advisors would have been happy to uh, drop atom bombs on Germany. Unfortunately, they weren't ready by that time, and Japan paid the price for that. But um, nevertheless, all of this didn't stop the American Eighth Air Force from bombing neutral Switzerland, bombing neutral, neutral Switzerland. Uh, Basel, Zurich, other towns in Switzerland were bombed by Americans. I guess it was an attempt to widen the war. They didn't give a damn. They knew they were going to win the war this late stage uh, of, the, of World War II, and so they could do whatever they wanted. That's, that's the clear message. In fact, one time uh, I actually was at a book signing here in Florida, and a gentleman came up, bought a book, but he told me that he, his home in Switzerland had actually been destroyed by American airplanes. So... But anyway, um, they're just with... chasing refugees. I mean, it was to wipe out the Germans. You had the Baltic Sea massacre. I mean, that, just chasing refugees. But before we get in, uh, that's a whole other topic, the Baltic Sea massacre. I want to mm -hmm. ask you that in detail. But um, relay some of the stories, you know, of the, like the father and son going to the business, you know, oh. see if anything was remained. I, people would need to hear how disgusting war actually is because they've been desensitized to it. They just don't – I don't think they fully understand, unless they've been in a war like, at all, how horrible it is. And most of the world experienced a war and never wanted another one, but the U.S. didn't lose any cities, didn't experience that. Didn't, you know, Some of the people coming home were over it, didn't want to talk about it, but you get a, a whole crop of uh, basically the America fuck yeah crowd who is – these jack-off missile Johnny Glass parking lot types who are demonizing the Muslims like as if they were the Nazis today uh, and and want to murder. Um, if you could talk about some of the stories you heard from these witnesses in, uh, in German cities, I think that would be very pertinent and useful for people to hear. Let me first lay out um, what a terror bombing raid uh, was like in the later stages of the war, 1944 to 1945. Uh, 
essentially it worked like this. In fact, uh, let's use Hamburg as an example, 1943. Hamburg had remained relatively unscathed in the first three years of war. A lot of folks surmised in Hamburg, that is, that the American and British left Hamburg alone, which is the second largest city in Germany, because it was the most English of all German cities, or because Churchill's aunt lived in Hamburg. They speculated on a lot of reasons, but I think they found out clearly why Hamburg had been left alone on a summer night in 1943. That's when the RAF came in with a thousand bombers and blew this otherwise untouched town to atoms, blew it to smithereens, just virtually extirpated Hamburg from the face of the earth. And when the people finally came out, uh, the ones who survived, that is, from their, their holes and saw the smoking city all around them, of course, they realized that it had been used as a test to see how devastating this raid could be. Uh, what the people didn't realize, however, was that this was just one half of the bombing raid. A few hours later, in came another thousand planes, and uh, when the people finally ran back and got into their air raid shelters again, the planes above started dropping bombs again, but these weren't high-explosive bombs. These were incendiary bombs. These were phosphorus bombs that ignited once they came down and contacted with the splinters, with the kindling that was Hamburg. After the first bombing raid, everything was blown to bits, including the old wooden structures in the old city. And so these firebombs ignited this kindling, the wood. And of course, the people who went back into their uh, uh, refuge, into their shelters, uh, that's the worst thing they could have done because these havens now became ovens. The fires caught, and in, in a matter of minutes, that's the description, in a matter of minutes, the fires joined and started creating this intense heat right in the center of the city, a heat so intense, some speculated that it was between 1,500 and 3,000 degrees, heat so intense that the copper roofs melted on the people who were trying to escape, heat so intense that it actually created a vortex, a flame, a fiery tornado, if you will that went three miles in the sky, according to some accounts. Now, a, a tremendous amount of heat like that in the center draws in incredible uh, cool air from the outside. So strong, so forceful that it was compared to a hurricane, the winds being sucked in to feed this furnace. And this, of course, tore roofs off buildings, uh, knocked over uh, trolley cars and automobiles and, and sucked them into the center. It also, unfortunately, sucked in people. Um, people were sucked in screaming into the middle of this fiery tornado. Those who weren't sucked in generally were those who uh, became mired in the melting asphalt. And, of course, the screams were very quick and over, and then people burst into flames. Um, that That is, in essence, a terror raid, a firestorm created. And Dresden was the most noteworthy. I think most of your listeners are aware of Dresden in February of 1945. But let me say this, all German cities suffered the fate similar to, to Hamburg and Dresden. Berlin, Munich, Mannheim, Würzburg, uh, Cologne, Dusseldorf, it go on and on. All cities in Germany suffered firestorms, even smaller cities. In fact, uh, one of the smaller cities, I think it's Forzheim, uh, a city of roughly 50,000 people was firebombed one night after Dresden and suffered 30,000 deaths. The body Out of 50, count on people. a lot of these are lower than what it ought to be because often in such a fire, yes. there aren't any bodies. Exactly. Uh, Dresden is the most egregious and criminal 
and special, I must say, um, firestorm raid that nothing, nothing that mankind has done to man comes close to equaling what happened in Dresden. Dresden suffered the same fate as Hamburg. I just described what happens there. Uh, plus Dresden. Some um, of the people in Dresden were refugees from the other cities that were firebombed, and they got firebombed twice. Half people in Dresden that night, February 14th, were, were refugees, mostly women, children, and old people, fleeing the Red Army to the east. Dresden, a city of roughly uh, 500 to 600,000 people, was doubled but that night by a roughly 500 600,000 refugees with nothing virtually nothing and certainly no records but uh, Dresden went through the same uh, cycle that I mentioned with Hamburg uh, with the exception that it was treated virtually the same way for the next week in other words the people who did survive the firestorm of Dresden, found shelter in the huge Central Park and along the banks of the Elba River, which uh, Dresden had been called the Florence on the Elba. It was a magnificent world treasure. And uh, this also made the Allies especially um, um, evil and uh, hateful of, of the city because that's a great way to get rid of a beautiful Germanic city. But the people who sought refuge the following day in the parks and along the river, um, they were they had to experience American strafing. American fighter pilots came in on a very clear day, and uh, just started killing the people. Just it was a massacre, a massacre of thousands and thousands of people. American pilots could see who they were shooting. There was no question about it. They chased them down, shot them with machine gun and cannons, even zoo animals that had miraculously escaped the two previous bombings were shot by these American heroes. In fact, one uh, zookeeper cried when he saw an American in a, uh, in a Mustang fighter plane chase down his last giraffe and shoot it, uh, shoot it full of holes. Uh, this went on for about a week, uh, killing everything that's in Dresden or coming into Dresden to try to rescue. And it's estimated uh, about two weeks later, the International Red Cross estimated that anywhere, it was around 250,000 was the total they came up with. That's the International Red Cross from Switzerland came there and took numbers. And about a month after that, the German bureaucrats, uh, and we all know how thorough and uh, uh, how, uh, how, how much Germans like to count beans and keep records and things like that. They came down and they estimated anywhere from about 200,000 to 400,000 died in Dresden, terror bombing of Dresden. What that means is, and I accept those numbers, by the way. That's the numbers I'm coming up with, too. I don't come up with the numbers that the modern-day uh, so-called historians and experts in Germany, which aren't Germans at all, say that 25 to 35,000 at most died in Dresden. That's a that's a lie, and they know it. They're no, full. They're the only the whole a, city was decimated. I mean, yes, the only bad. what they're trying to do. They figure that if they can diminish the number of deaths, they can diminish the crime itself. Well, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. Even the I trust people back then on the site. On the the thing is, what most people are missing here is that thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, I'm not sure, of people in Dresden that night were refugees and they had no records whatsoever. These people are simply gone. No records, uh, no addresses. And um, it's, it, you could put together the atomic bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima combined and they still do not equal the firebombing of Dresden on one night. 
I'd so argue that's... that those numbers were played down too, though. Uh, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Yeah. I Probably. think a lot more people died than what is admitted. And would, would you not, right uh, also admit that that's probably an attempt to diminish the crime? Oh, of course, it's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there are exaggerations uh, on, in both directions. They'll say the Germans killed more than they actually did, and they say the Allies killed fewer than they actually did. I mean, that's the benefit of winning a war. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really hard to determine numbers, too, when you just burn everything. These are civilian cities. You shouldn't be burning them at all. Even if they were empty, it's still a crime. It was. They are not military targets. Uh, they are just ethnically cleansing Germans and punishing. The, Dresden wasn't even an industrial center either. I mean, they're just blowing it up. Right, and um, it wasn't protected. Dresden had uh, gone throughout the war without any significant bombing raids. So the guns, the the anti-aircraft weapons that. Uh, that protected many or most German cities were taken elsewhere, needed elsewhere. And so we have a virtually unprotected town. It's also known as a refugee city, as we've mentioned. It's also known as a hospital city because it was one of the few places in Germany where people could come and recuperate, not just the soldiers, but other people with diseases and cancers and things like that. So it was all those things and it was the special animus of the allies to attack and destroy. It was also Stalin's request the three, the big so-called big three, the big three criminals, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, had met in Yalta to wrap everything up. We're getting close to winning the war. They knew that. They decided to uh, <clears throat> carve up the Turkey, and that was giving Stalin all of Eastern Europe, basically, and including Berlin. But Stalin also demanded from Churchill and Roosevelt his willing dupes. And by the way, they were. They were. Um, Man, I think if he's if he, if Stalin had said get down on your your knees and and service me, I think they would have. That's how desperate these creatures were. Roosevelt in America, Churchill in England, but they Stalin demanded they do something, do something major, do something horrific to Germany to draw away some of the um, German soldiers that were fighting his men on the East Front, still fighting tooth and nail, by the way. And so the, Dresden was their gift to Stalin, basically. This this probably the greatest war crime in world history. Now, this book, this movie, talks about a lot of major war crimes, so it's very difficult at times to, to discern, uh, determine which is the most beastly and abominable crime committed by the Allies. You put them all together, nothing ever occurred in Earth history that would come or equate to what the Allies did to the Germans during and after the war. Nothing comes close. I'm a student of history just like you are, Rye. Um, no, you can look in vain for the rest of your life, and you'll never find anything like this. We're just talking about one component. Well, the, the other thing, too, terrible. is the, the other atrocities in history, usually after a certain amount of time, they are vilified. People at least admit it was wrong, that it was done. Mm -hmm. But they don't even admit that this was done. Mm -hmm. I you're, mean, you're, historians you're... agree about Dresden and everything, but it's not it's – not, it's not your school textbook, if you know what I'm saying. Like you, yeah. you just hear the other side. You do not hear the the mass amount of rape that happened, especially from the Soviet Union and the, some of the Mongolian hordes that came in, raping people to death. <clears throat> Sorry, and uh, you know, rape as murder. You know, shoving broom handles up German women's vaginas mm -hmm. and and every other objects and gutting people and sawing people in half and 
Yeah, it kind of. I'll tell you what, we'll talk about that in just a second. You're right, though. Um, you know, um, it's been 70 years. The crimes we're talking about and the crimes we will talk about. No, nobody really knows about this. 70 years. Now, this, what you hear, what I'm going to tell you, I think it'll convince you by the time we're through, is the greatest, by far, war crime ever to, war crimes ever to occur. But you know, there's a crime within a crime here. 70 years under a mountain of lies, hate, envy. All of this has been buried for 70 years. That's a crime too. That's a world crime if you ask me. Why is it a crime? Because you're right. We need to know both sides of the war because that old saying, it still holds true about if you do not learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it. I will add that if you do not even have a history, you're never going to learn from it. And so you're going to repeat it. And that's exactly what we're doing right now in the Middle East. And probably unless we get a grip, what's going to happen with us and Russia? That is us. I'm talking about the West and Russia fighting, fighting it out with World War III. Um, well, I mean, the World War II was the worst war in history. Absolutely. And, you know, around 65 million people died conservatively. Well, I'm including the, the communist deaths in China and Russia. That is just unfathomable. And yet World War II is constantly used to justify the next new war. And they sit call Saddam Hussein's the new Hitler. Vladimir Putin's the new Hitler. Ahmadinejad's the new Hitler. You get these from these neocons like Gary Schmidt and Robert Kagan and these fools and these chicken hawks that are like Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. That is the go-to example of even in college, if you want to give an example of something evil, it's the Nazis. It's the new state religion. It's yes. Nazis, Nazis. I mean, and any, at any, any attempt at peace, reconciliation between the two sides, between Russia and Iran and America, any attempt is always called uh, Munich. It's called basically, uh, in other words, they, they equate it with Munich and um, acquiescence, that if we don't stop this new Hitler now or this new Third Reich, yes, we're basically setting ourselves up for an even worse fall. It's the well, same World War I is what set up World War II, but what I don't understand is the psychology of how can these colonial empires get a pass? You know, when the British and French killed about 44 million Africans, um, the colonization of the United States, the millions killed in Vietnam, millions killed in North Korea, over a million killed recently in Iraq, that's with, since 2003, um, the rampant starvation, etc. Our government has killed millions of people after world war ii and still doesn't it doesn't receive the stigma and the association with evil uh for the wars after not even what they did to the germans but what they've done to indochina and all these other places murdering millions of people and yet still walk around the world stage as the good guys and humanitarians and so on it blows my mind well, when you um, control the media, as the Jewish power grid has for the last 100 years, you're going to control people's thoughts, more or less. You're going to control uh, what your governments do. And that's been the case uh, ever since World War II, well, from World War I all the way up to now. But it's changing. Uh, it's, it's changing rapidly. In fact, the fact that you and I are talking here, the fact that we're sharing, or we're, we're bridging continents you in Asia, me in uh, North America. That shows that the dynamics are changing. But you're right. 
Uh, it's easy to uh, continue the same old, same old when you own the presses, when you own the TVs, when you own the radios, because that's, after all, the only thing our parents and grandparents had to go on. So they were easy to control. We See, I understand so what you're saying there if you want to talk about something like the Israeli colonization of Palestine, where nobody on TV or even a newspaper will admit that there's a military occupation, that they build Jewish-only cities and bulldoze down houses and kill Palestinians and occupy the land. They act like there's settlements and neighborhoods and Israel's on the defense and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm, but sure. some of these other things, like the the war in Vietnam, which also attacked Laos and Cambodia, um, are known. Like it, that's already people know. Millions of people were killed, and it's still like, yeah, whatever. Um, it's not even hidden. Some of this stuff from the media, and because it, it doesn't involve the Zionists, they'll go ahead and admit how many people died in Asia. It doesn't really, you know, affect them so much, but. Yeah, obviously with Israel, that's how it is. That's, you know, we wouldn't have sanctions on Iran. We would not have gone to war in Iraq. We wouldn't be involved in Syria if it weren't for the Israeli lobby. But there are still some crimes that everyone knows the British and French colonized like half the planet. And it's, it all gets a pass. It's like, oh, well, that was a long time ago. It's like, no, it no, it isn't. The, I'm talking about wars that happened after World War II. Like mm -hmm. the last 70 years, the millions of people that the Allied powers have continued to butcher. The Russians killed about 1.7 million people in Afghanistan in the 80s. That's a lot of people for such a small country. I don't know mm -hmm. how many the Americans have killed, but we're set to be there till 2024. And it's as if their lives don't even matter, just like the Germans. And that's why I think if you could start, you know, from the, not the beginning but yet, but, you know, from World War II on and understand the victims of that war, then you could understand the victims of the wars after and the wars that are currently happening now. You know, let me say this. Uh, first of all, what, when, we, when, when I get off the book and the subject of the book, I'm mostly shooting from the hip. I'm not an expert. I'm not a, even an expert on my own life, much less uh, other histories. Let me say this, and let me offer this. Uh, we live in a a highly militarized society, and that goes for most Western nations, but America is preeminently a welfare warfare state. That's how we exist. That's what we, that's our sustenance. We have become so numbed to the nonstop wars, and basically it's been a continuum ever since World War, well, ever since the Spanish-American War. Uh, it's been a continuum of American aggression, American occupation, American slaughter, and you can deny it all you want, but the stats really don't lie on this one. We have been almost always engaged in a war somewhere or some sort of, quote, police action. Now, let's put it this way. It, sometimes they're hard to keep track of. You'd almost have to keep scorecard. And eventually, people say, well, what the fuck? I mean, why? I, I, Vietnam, that's ancient history. Or Grenada. Or attacking Panama. Or Honduras. It's nothing to them, even though, as you mentioned, thousands, even hundreds of thousands are killed. And the number Eventually, of uh, CIA assassinations and other incursions and things. Absolutely. Well, going on with, right, with uh, Iran and other countries right now, this low-grade uh, warfare against them. Um, eventually, well, the, the banking, even the IMF's intentional uh, perpetual debt and starvation rampant around the third world, that is on purpose. It's going to take... Bigger piece and bigger people probably than Ry Dawson and Tom Goodrich to actually uh, 
focus on one war and say, this was truly terrible, folks. Do you remember what happened? Because let's face it, Ryan, there's always more wars coming. And to, to, to really focus upon any war, uh, what can I say? Uh, no wonder most people don't give a damn. I'm talking about Mer Americans right now. Let me, because I'm familiar with Americans. Of course they don't give a damn. I mean, but honestly, how in the hell could they give a damn? There's so many wars to choose from. And we've got so many coming up. Uh, even these creatures, these neocon monsters, this mafia that runs this country right now, they admit that this is probably going to last uh, your lifetime, maybe even your kid's lifetime. It's a nonstop war. Damn, they come right out and tell us that. They openly you know have aided Al-Qaeda, the Mujahideen, Jandala, they create the wars. You're right. Like all these, these covert mercenaries, these proxy forces, they create – it, they write policy papers boasting about it. They say, well, it's good for business. You know, let's keep these two fight sides fighting each other on low-level controlled conflict to keep that whole uh, revolving door spinning in a circle with the military-industrial complex. That's the, the other result of World War II was that, you know, as wars became more and more mechanized and used more and more expensive machines, planes, tanks, and so on, it created a, a new kind of industry. This isn't like the guys with guns on a horse. This, it became extremely expensive to wage modern warfare in the mechanized era. And it's now worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And when we talk about the welfare warfare state, the majority, almost 90% of the welfare is corporate welfare. And it's most of the corporate welfare is involved in military industries. And half the shit they make doesn't even work. I mean, they just they build things for the sake of it, just to involve as many industries as possible. Because it's you know, the the government redistributing wealth to itself uh, to murder other people in another place. I mean, it's the worst thing in the world. But you're not allowed to take a real good analytical look at any of it because to question what was done in World War II, the excessive uh, deaths, defeats, the nuclear blasting, etc is to be equated with uh, you'll be a racist and a Nazi and everything evil when really it's just somebody trying to advocate peace. Say, well, is it really necessary to murder millions of people and to starve people to death? Of course it isn't, but you'll be labeled as evil. If you stick up for Palestinians, they think you hate Jews, but well, couldn't I just not support genocide because it's wrong? I mean, it doesn't have to do anything with ethnicities or or religions or anything. It's just morally abhorrent to bulldoze down someone's house and shoot their children. I mean, that that is a fact of what is happening, and yet it, it happens openly, and our media ignores it on purpose. Yeah, I, uh, I, I suppose I've crossed the line. I suppose this is what homosexuals felt like when they came out of the closet. They felt this sudden release, this euphoria, this freedom. Uh, words don't bother me anymore. People can call me virtually anything they want. Um, and it's just not going to stop me. It won't deter me. It's not going to uh, abate. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue. And they well, can call me anything they I'm want. I'm just saying the, that the words are effective because it, you Sure professors have been fired. People lose their jobs. It can right. affect your life tremendously. Um, for I think that's why a lot of businessmen and people don't even bother talking about subjects they know well and good about because you will pay a real price just for your political opinion or historical opinion on World War II. It is the most 
taboo subject there is. More Let me than, say this. More than religion, more than anything. It's Let me World say this. Yeah, right. Uh, this is a development that um, you might find um, interesting. I get emails virtually every day, and occasionally they're really revelational emails. I cannot tell you how many individuals have emailed me recently in the last year or so, and these people are crossing the line. They realize that the the ground they're standing on is shrinking, and we're talking about movers and shakers. We're talking about leaders in their professions. I, I won't reveal any professions because it may get very close to revealing uh, who the people are. But let me say this, I will reveal one profession. And the other day I got uh, an email from an individual who is a high functionary in the EU, the European Union, encouraging me to continue. Now, there, here's the people, here's the person that is uh, locked into the system, but who knows the system is rotten. And these people are starting to commit because their instincts are kicking in. They realize that time is short. World War III could be breaking out as we speak right now, for all we know. And there's not going to be much time to worry about your jobs or uh, security if World War III and nuclear Armageddon comes down on us. And so I think people are realizing that uh, jobs, uh, uh, peer pressure, um, these are secondary to survival. And if we don't do something pretty damn quick, we may not be surviving. And I think that's what this is all about. It's like animals during a tsunami. You can watch animals and they'll head for high ground before the humans will. And I think that's what, what's happening right now is people are actually coming over and they're basically going to work. And I think that's what's happening. At least it is in my situation. You know, uh, here in America, you know, we've got sports up the wazoo, uh, college sports, especially college football. Um, some of these universities are really basically just large uh, football programs with a small college attached. And I think that's also <laughs> the case with America. With America right now is it's a small, rotting, soon-to-be third-world nation with an enormous military uh, component attached to it. In other words, we're attached to the military machine right now. It's not the other way around. Otherwise, you wouldn't be ta paying taxes on taxes. That's what's going on right now. A tax for this, a tax for that. On and on and on. You've got to fund this military monster that we've got. And that's what's happening. And it's rotting us out entirely. We don't, you know, it's rare to find an American who actually believes in this country, other than your stupid sports fan who shops at Walmart and uh, hangs out his flag patriotically. Walmartians, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, no, you're, you ask, talk to any semi-intelligent, studious American, and you say something, say something stupid to them uh, about great uh, that we're winning someplace like that, and they'll look at you like you're nuts. Because we have lost faith in this country. And that's exactly what I mean by well, a rotting third mass world media, nation. Like you said earlier, because if you just for a quick example, um, the second war in Iraq, millions of people protested the war, and the only ones to cover it were C SPAN. I've I mean, not that. a single channel. I was there, one of them in New York City. Um, You're the second person to tell me that in two days, by the way. Well,. It's true, because people at the protest were looking forward to the coverage on TV, and people were like, what protest? I mean, if you weren't in the, one of those cities, you would not have known that even happened. There were protests around the entire world, and they got coverage, except for the ones in American cities. You know, Only we're back, covered it. And we're back to your um, 
your uh, your title for your show, this anti-neocon approach. You know, the same mobs. Um, well, I remember Vietnam. I was I was in the military at the time. I'm that old. Uh, but no, it, every night it was e- evening news. Uh, thousands of uh, people marching in the streets against the Vietnam War. It, it got all the coverage it could possibly handle. Now we've got the, these neocons, the same individuals who are marching in the streets against the war in Vietnam, against the, uh, about a war, in theory at least, against communism. Now the same people, their, their sons and daughters, of course, or grandsons and granddaughters, are the ones that are most uh, avaricious for war in the Middle East. Does anybody put these two things together? Do they understand? It was basically Jewish leadership in the Vietnam period, the protest that is. And now we've got the same individuals or their daughters and granddaughters who are basically the loudest cheerleaders for war in the Middle East against Muslims when it benefits Israel. Do you see the, I hope your listeners understand this. It's taken, it's really not very difficult to understand. Maybe I'm getting off on the uh, subject here. I get a good, great host like you, Ryan. I well, I'm going to bring it to... back to the rape stories. It's not that I'm looking forward to yeah. talking about that, but I think it's necessary. But I think, you know, with with Vietnam, you is where they learned, all right, we better control the press because it was because of the press and the protest. I mean, that war was about helicopters and heroin. It wasn't really about communism. And it was mm-hmm. the people that got us into the war. Um, the, the, that's, I mean, it's too long to explain. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, with Israel, basically what happened is you had a... St- I'm not going to get into the creation of Israel, but basically with the, the British and the American military support and their yearning for conflict the whatever peace advocates and peaceful jews that wanted you know any political clout in israel never had a chance that state was a war state from the beginning because all the hardline zionist hawks and the most racist the most you know uh militant bunch got financial support from outside and from the same thing with religious institutions. It's not your peaceful Quakers that are are, are hurting people. It's the it's the uh, evangelicals that get airtime on TV and rope in billions mm-hmm. of dollars and send it to Israel. And so, from its inception, it was never going to be a peaceful state, and it never had any political independence. It, it was inundated with the most militant, the mo- the most racist, the most hardline Zionist Jews, Jewish supremacists that were given a country and obviously that led to conflict but that was the point is the the more you the more you can get people to fight with their neighbors the better for the military industrial complex but i i, I want to get back to the book um i i mean it's not that i did this interview just to talk about the book the whole point is to talk about the book and show its relevance in to today too, mm-hmm. and yeah, you're doing a good job on that i want to uh talk about the rapes some because this is it's this more than it's I don't know. I don't I hate saying what's worse, whatever, but this is in addition mm-hmm. in addition to physically destroying Germany, burning the cities, it's a, a sort of a, a spiritual breaking as well when yeah. you have mass rape on that scale. You're absolutely right. Um it's to me, to be quite honest, uh, there's there's a number of terrible components in this book and in the movie that just came out, Hellstorm, uh, the Allied terror bomb we've talked about, the Baltic massacre in which 
Ships went down with three, four, even seven and 9,000 refugees sunk. You've heard of the Lusitania, you've heard of the Titanic. We're talking ships that sink with anywhere from, you know, five to seven, 8,000 people. Who's counting? They drown. These are nautical disasters uh, like the world has never seen before. Talk about the murder of prisoners, the torture of uh, Germans, common Germans, ordinary Germans after the war. Torture by Americans and by Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, operators in Poland. Some of the most vicious and beastly tortures the, the mind could ever imagine. Talking about expulsion, talking about a Morgenthau plan, talking about various components that put them all together. They're called, the, in my opinion, the world's darkest and best kept secret. But in my opinion, yeah, the, the rape component is by far the most abominable and hideous and vicious and depraved element in the entire book, in the entire war, in the entire world. Because it's a um, – well, let me give you an example. In fact, much of this occurs on the Eastern Front where the Russians are invading, not the Russians so much as the Soviets – when I say Russian, there is a Russian um, ethnic group, Russians, ethnics. This is the Soviet Union, roughly, I think, 15 or 20-something uh, republics, including the Asiatics. On the East Front, as the Russians, the uh, Soviet Union began to break into Germany, there was an individual, Stalin's right-hand man, a propagandist named Ilya Ehrenberg, a Jewish um, uh, hate-filled creature who basically made it his job, his duty – to inflame the Soviet soldier as much as he possibly could. And what do I mean by that? I mean by writing these flaming broadsides that were uh, printed into flyers that could be dropped from airplanes onto the front lines so the average soldier, Soviet soldier knew what was expected of him. Let me read this to you. This is from one of Ilya Ehrenberg's many uh, flyers. Kill them all, the old men, the children, and the women, after you have amused yourself with them kill. Nothing in Germany is guiltless, neither the living nor the yet unborn. Break the racial pride of the German women. Take her as your legitimate booty. Kill you brave soldiers of the victorious Soviet army. Um, that's basically an order to the men down below. Once you get into Germany, all bets are off. Everything's free, no laws, nothing. In fact, it's not that you can just do stuff, terrible stuff for free without consequences. It's demanded of you. It's your duty, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn admitted after the war, the great Russian poet. It was almost a combat distinction to take the women, rape the women, and then kill the women when you were through. And unfortunately, many of these young Soviet soldiers acted upon it and did the most terrible things you can imagine. Now, Game I had always – I had known something about this in the past. Did you have something you want to say, Ry? I'm saying it's not just raping the women. It's gang raping the women as well. Yes, uh, I had known something about this in the past. If you read any standard book on World War II, you'll pick up some of this stuff. I had never imagined it, though, to the degree it took place until I started researching. Um, the frontline soldiers were composed largely of Russian ethnics. That is, Russians, Belarus, Ukrainian soldiers, the hard white shock troops. These were the fighters. These are the ones that met the German soldiers and fought tooth and nail on the front lines. The men behind the front line are the Russian soldiers. The second echelon, or rear echelon, who brought up the supply side, who drove the trucks, who herded the animals, who cooked, who did lots, lots of things like that. 
These were the most uh, malicious and vicious and depraved crew you could ever imagine. These also were, uh, by and large, Asiatics. These were Mongols, especially the Mongols, but there were other people from Asia. And uh, these, time and again, the victims, that is the Russian or the uh, German women, talk about the Mongols and the slant eyes and how animal-like they were, running from home to home, from room to room to rape, rape, and rape some more. And this did go on. In fact, uh, you know, the book, throughout the book, rape is a component that appears again and again because it was occurring from 1944 all the way to 1947, the rape component. And yes, probably hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of German women were raped to death, quite honestly. Some men raped as well, and boys. I, you know, that's been brought up, yes. Um, uh, although I didn't have any information on that, yes, of course. You have these people uh, that will rape men. and But my accounts only are talking about women because, quite honestly, I didn't get the material for that. But of course it did, and you know it did. But you've got these individuals that are not only looting and not only killing, but rape above all rape that seems to be their whole reason for existence and women are actually raped to death and many of them are killed with a bullet who refuse publicly and many raped to death in front of the publicly raped. and many a child and many a husband is killed because they tried to protect their wife or mother or or mother uh, in fact um, one of the special treatments for men who tried to protect their women was to be sawed in half. I don't know what that's all about, but time and again they talk about men folk being sawed in half, literally. But the, 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 the other um, devilish component to the rapes that occurred was that they always seemed to have – they always seemed to be a public affair. It wasn't enough to rape a woman. It seems as though – you had to find a public place to rape a woman, either in the town square, in a building filled with people, especially a church. They loved going to churches because there they could rape the nuns over and over and over. And many women chose the church as a refuge, of course, and it was the worst place on earth they could go. Or if it happened to be a, a farmhouse, uh, a wife, a mother was raped in front of her family time and time again. And I think the uh, the element here, it's, uh, let me say this, it, with almost every Russian unit, Soviet Union came through, you almost always had a Jewish commissar. That's a political officer that is always available, always around to make sure that all the soldiers are good little Soviets and Marxists and communists and hate Germans to the proper degree. In other words, if you don't, you might have your brains blown out by this Jewish commissar. So these characters, these uh, vicious cheerleaders are always there making sure that this happens. And of course, for a woman to be it's, – it's terrible enough for a person, any person, to be raped, even if it's in the privacy of a bedroom or a hidden corner among the rubble. But to be raped and survive your rape in front of your entire village, the village that knows you as perhaps the, uh, the young 18-year-old who works in the village grocery store selling bread and cheese, it's a double death because if she survives – she really doesn't because let's face it, um, her spirit, she's been spiritually slaughtered. Her entire village has seen her on her hands and knees being ser ser servicing a hundred filthy, dirty, drunk Mongolians one afternoon. How do you go back to selling bread and cheese in that store if you survive? Well, there How were areas that the Germans recaptured and they said what survivors there were were 
were not there. They were vacant and just muttering the same sentences and just not, mm -hmm. they're completely mentally fucked. And yeah. I yeah. yeah. That, uh, it, and no one could survive such a thing. You know, uh, it, it's standard operating procedures. We're not talking about aberrations or anomalies here. We're not talking about something out there. This is standard. This happens over and over again. And here's something else that becomes fairly standard when you see it written enough times, in the words of the people themselves, by the way. Raping a woman in broad daylight on a busy street over and over, a line standing there raping her until she dies from bleeding, from the vagina, of course, or from the beatings she continually gets. And yet the line continues to build. They keep, keep coming and they keep laughing to rape a corpse. In broad daylight, when the woman eventually becomes as stiff as a log, then they cram a telephone receiver or an iron bar or a, a rock up her vagina to signify closed for business. It happens over and over and over again, so much so that it's not something out there. It's not just some aberration. Every single one was bloodstained in the crotch region. Yes, over like and over. Lined up all next to each other with the, that impaling. Yes, in fact, uh, I should say this, uh, maybe it would explain or help one to understand, if not excuse, but the Russian soldier and the Asiatics who followed were crazy for drink, crazy for booze. The war had been fought two or three years in Russia itself, uh, Soviet Union, and now suddenly all bets are off, you can do anything you want, and so getting drunk then and now, quite honestly, I've been in the military myself, is the thing you want to do the most. Uh, they would grab anything from perfume and, and uh, expensive cognac all the way to rubbing alcohol and even gasoline and drink that stuff. So you've got wild animals anyway with, with, uh, with hate in their hearts and with uh, sadism in their minds now blitzed utterly out of their minds with this, uh, this stuff they've just thrown into them. I guess that's what makes a monster. It makes somebody capable of ra raping a corpse over and over until it's dead and laughing about it. Now, this, uh, you know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have put that in the book, this aspect, this raping of corpses and actually going into mortuaries and raping the bodies in there, going into old folks' homes and raping the people, you know, the standard... Uh, age range, the laughing, they laughed about it, was from 8 to 80. Any woman in that age range could expect to be raped and raped some more, raped over and over. But I've found occasions where there were children six years old and women eight, 90, some, 90 something years old actually being raped. So there are no absolutes in this. The borders are situational. But when you have a crew like this of, of monsters, this is what happens. And you're right. Um, and they have the the audacity to have war crime crimes tribunal tribunal sorry in the Nuremberg trials and talk about what the Germans did and and a lot of it they did do they they burned villages in Poland and they did a lot of horrible things but the Allies were guilty of every single thing they accused the Nazis of doing they had done not only in that war but in other wars before and after and yet. None of them went to jail. None of them. Were, you know, we can't even acknowledge that there was a crime and that it even happened. It was like, well, you deserve it because you're Nazis, and not even all of them were Nazis. And you, you're right. 
They're civilians. It's the same. It's like I hear this tale of people who try and justify nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki where they say, well, they attacked Pearl Harbor. I'm like, well, for one, Hawaii was not part of the United States and it wouldn't be until 1958. Two, Pearl Harbor was a military base and it was attacked because of the oil embargo and everything. They didn't attack Hawaii. They attacked a base. But when the U.S. got to Japan... They just bombed cities. It didn't matter if there was a base there or not. They were attacking Japan and Japanese people. And the racist propaganda, you know, the, the monkeys and the dehumanization process that went on, there, you know, of course there was lots of rape and murder and take no prisoner. I mean, that's how, that's what it is. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying the Japanese didn't rape Koreans or anything either. I mean, of course the Japanese murdered and raped Chinese and Koreans and did the same kind of crime. But they also... That's acknowledged and been punished. But what the Americans did, what the Soviets did, the French, the British, burning people alive, raping, it's like it never happened at all. You know, Ry, I want to uh, go back. You were talking about, uh, you know, the Germans did some terrible things. Uh, warfare is, is always bad. I don't give a damn what anybody says. It's always bad. It's always evil. It's always inherently bad and evil. Accept that people will do bad things. You cannot control all of them. And so, yes, there were excesses and crimes committed by Germans. Well, they, but let me they say held this. to the Geneva Conventions better than Absolutely. the Allies. Absolutely. They <laughs> adhered to it to the T, as Americans even admitted. 99% uh, of American POWs lived, survived the, the terrible German uh, POW camps to go back home and uh, mow their lawns, get married, 99%. That's not me talking. That's the International Red Cross. Germans, to the best of their abilities, even in the late stages of this hideous uh, cataclysm called World War II, did their dead-level best to live up to the Geneva Convention and the rules of uh, civilized warfare. Also, let me say this. Germans captured roughly 5 million Russian soldiers in the initial stages and later stages of the war. Russia, or excuse me, the Soviet Union and Germany had no agreement, no Geneva Convention. There was nothing there. In other words, the Germans were not obligated in one a, at all to provide the Russian POW with any food, any shelter, any clothing, anything. In fact, the Russians more or less, or the, Ger or the uh, Soviet Union, more or less uh, treated their uh, German prisoners immediately, like the slaves that they were. And they were off to the mines if they weren't killed immediately. The same thing to the other Russians. Yes, of course. We're talking about Jewish Bolshevism in operation in Russia for the last 30 years. That's what you've got right now. However, I think it's uh, instructive that at the end of the war, there were something like 5 million German, or excuse me, I get the, Russians that survived that war, that lived to go back to Stalin and probably face the gulag like Alexander Solzhenitsyn did, or perhaps get back to their village, marry Olga, and then, uh, you know, try to live. Now, the Germans... Well, you know about too. Operation Kielhall. Yes, where, it's in the book also, yes. Right. It's, uh, well, of course, you know, I'm just saying it as a way of segueing. But that's, again, for people who don't know what that is, so prisoners that were released um, from... Uh, no, Germany, not released. They were actually well, uh, expatriated forcefully. Right were murdered once they got back to the Soviet Union. They were forced back, and that was another crime. It's a crime. It's a, it's a treachery and a deception and a deceit so enormous that I don't know of any other greater than that. 
And while we're on it, let me let me just say a couple of things about that. All these Russians and uh, that 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 were either captured or had actually thrown down their arms and went to the German side, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. Probably a POW camp, maybe starvation, maybe death. Nevertheless, preferred that rather than the fight for Stalin and communism. These people after the war, roughly five million. Stalin wants them back. He demands they come back. The Americans and British obeyed. They would have done anything for him. Now, they didn't have to because at the time, the American army probably could have rolled right over uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, easily, quite honestly. Germans had bled the Soviet army white. They were down to convicts. Uh, even women fighting in the ranks then. Well, so the Americans the just did... coming from the British and the Americans anyway. Yes, that's what kept them alive. So it was a, it was willful that they would repatriate against their wishes these five million uh, Russian Soviet citizens, and probably ninety nine percent of them, if they were not killed immediately, and and probably millions were within hours of being turned back to the Soviets, uh, were sent to the mines and uh, forced to live out the rest of their lives as slaves. But the, the, to prove that nobody willingly went back to Stalin's Soviet Union, uh, the Americans and British had to trick these people, including the Cossacks. We're talking mostly anti-communist people, including the fiercely independent Cossacks. You had to trick them. They're very unsophisticated people. To give them a party the night before, thousands of uh, Russians in these camps, these concentration camps, and get the leadership drunk and then kindly get them out of the way. And then the next morning with tanks surrounding the camps with spotlights to beat and club and sometimes even kill to get these people onto trucks and trains and send them back to the Russians, the Russian lines, which are not very far away, maybe maybe 20 miles or so. And then when you get them there, uh, you can hear the shooting going on, the slaughter. You can hear the people singing, chanting uh, prayers, hope to God that I can live through this. Or in the case of uh, the Crimea area, where they would drop them off the boats, the, the uh, Soviet citizens, that is, you'd see bombers flying overhead over these uh, warehouses where the where the people would be repatriated to. And, uh, of course, that's to drown out the machine gun fire as they slaughter these people. It's called Operation Keel Hall. It was one of the most dastardly and disgusting aspects in American history, quite honestly. That's an event. In you know post World War Two, where people were put on trucks and trains by the millions to go be sent to their deaths, mm-hmm. they actually yep. took prisoners out of concentration camps and by train and sent them somewhere to die. But it wasn't the Germans doing it; it was the Americans and the British doing it. You know, and back to this thought about uh, well, the, the Germans did terrible things, and so it's okay if the Allies do it. My thought is, and I again, I'm not an expert in World War II, but I've done enough research that the Germans did their best to live up to the Geneva Convention, to fight an honorable war as it was fought in World War I. But they did not understand the forces arrayed against them. They did not understand the level of hate and envy and propaganda. Well, even and, if they had broken every convention rule, it wouldn't matter. It still doesn't no. make it okay to do it back. Like, it's that that think that just like that rationale to me doesn't make any sense like well, it's wrong for them to do it it's wrong for you to do it too for the same reasons i mean you can't yes. murder civilians they didn't do it that's why i was getting out of the pearl harbor uh, analogy 
Japanese military attacked Pearl Harbor, not people living in Hiroshima. You know, it's like the America went to war with Iraq. I didn't want to go to war with Iraq. I don't want to. I had no part in that. Should my family have to die? You know, and everybody in my whole town get killed because of what some jackasses did. You know, some neocons started a war in the Middle East. Like we weren't for it. And obviously, if you're not joining the military and everything in Japan, as they didn't, then they, most of them probably had opposed the war. But everyone was murdered. Um, everything was murdered in Hiroshima. I mean, every everything died. The plants, the animals, every, and then irradiated. I mean, the, those kind of war crimes, it just it blows my mind. How come every example of evil goes back to Nazis and they cannot see that the Allies are guilty of all the same crimes? The real crime is war. War is the crime. There are no victors. There are no, are no good guys. It's just a bunch of governments murdering millions of people because they can. So they, I mean, here's what I don't like about uh, a war and defeat, especially, is that you control not only the enemy you've just defeated, but you control all sources of communication. It's the easiest thing on earth to, after the armistice, after you've disarmed your enemy. Easiest thing on earth is to project your own crimes on that enemy, to vilify and denigrate and make them look like the most bloodthirsty monsters. And suddenly you come off looking like paragons of virtue. You've, uh, you're the great crusaders in Europe. You're the, the uh, instruments to fight evil. And suddenly it becomes evil. And suddenly you've got the crimes. For instance, all the crimes that I'm talking about in this book were committed by the allies, but many of these crimes were projected onto the Germans themselves. And I know damn good and well, a lot of them are lies. I, like I said, I'm Please not an expert. talk about what Eisenhower did in peacetime. Yeah. yeah because yeah. they murdered more Germans in peacetime than in the war. Eisenhower was an inveterate hater of Germans. He said it many times to his wife. He, uh, being the astute politician, political general that he was, I don't, there's not too many public announcements. You have to search his memoirs, his uh, diaries, his uh, letters home to his wife. Uh, Eisenhower has come down in history as some great leader, some great conqueror, a mighty general. People have compared him to U.S. Grant and uh, Robert E. Lee. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Eisenhower, like was a, <laughs> Eisenhower was a political general. Eisenhower was a commissar general. He was, he'd never heard a bullet fired in anger. He was a political appointment, pure and simple. He was a dutiful tool of FDR and his Jewish advisors. They wanted a man who would have no mercy on Germany. They got that man. His ambition was to kill as many Germans as he possibly could. If he couldn't do that in war, he was more than willing to do it in peace. Do it in peace. Do it to disarmed, helpless German POWs. And that's exactly what he did. Once the guns were laid down, once the American POWs had been freed from German uh, POW camps and there would be no repost or uh, reprisals against the Americans, then Eisenhower went to work. In fact, Eisenhower was a shifty character. Let me say this also. I'm from Kansas originally, and so is Eisenhower. And so I grew up believing in Eisenhower. My parents were solid Republicans. I like Ike. I had nothing but good thoughts in my mind about Eisenhower until I went to work on this book. Then I find out that he's, without a doubt, one of the greatest war criminals and mass murderers in, in human history. Eisenhower, when the war was over, um, knowing that the International Red Cross in Switzerland would be snooping around, what he did basically was switch the nomenclature, switch the designation from POWs, that is prisoners of yeah. war, uh, 
to something called DEFs, Disarmed Enemy Forces. And with that little sleight of hand, that little bit of ledger domain, Eisenhower, at least in his mind, went from needing to adhere to the Geneva Convention to basically um, becoming a mass murderer and doing anything he wanted with the uh, roughly 5 million helpless, disarmed, exhausted German prisoners that fell into his hand, ex-German soldiers. Um, and for the next 12 months, I believe it was 12 to 16 months, Eisenhower killed in peace twice the amount of German soldiers that he killed in war, that the American forces. In other words, all the German soldiers killed on the entire Western Front throughout the entire war were still less than half of the number that Eisenhower killed in peace, so-called peace. And how did he kill them in peace? He allowed these men to stand around in open, exposed pastures in crappy weather. Spring weather in, in Germany is generally horrible, rainy, cold, miserable. But anywhere from 800,000 to 1.5 million helpless, disarmed German POWs died from either hunger or dehydration or, or, or the elements or uh, uh, sickness. He allowed them to stand out, mostly stand because they were so c compact in there, to stand with no food. In fact, there a lot These of folks are very say, well, different than the German death camps that had kitchens and bunks and beds. And these are just fields where you put a bunch these, of people and you don't feed them and they die. This that's absolutely right. Uh, Eisenhower, um, even though a lot of folks like to say they used to like to say that. Uh, well, there wasn't any food. There was shortage, food shortages in uh, Europe. Uh, people were starving everywhere. Not so, not so. Uh, there were certain areas that were less than uh, bountiful, quite honestly. But just across the German border in Switzerland, tons upon tons upon tons, a bounty of food was available through the International Red Cross. Eisenhower forbid them to send trains into these German camps to feed these people. The American soldiers, their, their warehouses were, were just bursting at the seams with tons upon tons of food. In fact, one German remembered eating bird seed. They had to eat uh, boiled bird seed to stay alive. But on one of the K rations he saw, the Germans were getting one-tenth the caloric uh, intake of the average American soldier. And so you've got people dying. You've got camps of 50,000 people, and you've got 500 dying a day from hunger. You've got another 500 dying from dehydration, even though the River Rhine runs just beyond the barbed wire. These men are, are down to drinking their own urine, even though the water is running right by their camp. This is a deliberate murder. This is, there's no uh, – Americans are very organized. There's no more war. They could have done – they could have kept these people alive. They didn't. It's as simple as that. And yet Eisenhower comes back, uh, you know, he comes back and he's elected president, American president. Um, well, Eisenhower ran a lot of the psych war department as well. Um, uh, yeah, we're not even touching upon the torture, this just pure torture for sadism's sake. I'm getting tongue-tied now. I suppose my tongue is going faster than my mind. But uh, there is, you know, the, you, you mentioned this before we went on air, Ryan. That if <sighs> the book is so abominable that you, you cannot, when you read the book and pass it on to somebody, hopefully, you can't say, 
here, I hope you enjoy it. And it's the same way with me when I sign a copy and hand it over to someone. I, I, I've never said, here, I hope you enjoy this. That's out. This is not a book you can enjoy. It's a book hopefully you can read. Uh, a lot of people can't read it, but hopefully you can read it. Hopefully you can understand what this is all about. Hopefully you never forget what this book is about. And then hopefully you not only read it and understand it and never forget it, hopefully you act upon this book. Hopefully you work to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. Yeah, not in your name. Silence is acquiescence. And silence is acquiescence. Absolutely. I had a hard it's time like, reading the book. I, I, it's, I, when I read White Peace, I had the same reaction i had to put it down many times because i couldn't deal with a lot of it and but i you know i finished it and i saw the the film that's come out recently too and that was hard to sit through um you know any, well any war is hard but it's just yeah it's very graphic you know people wading through inches of melted fat and just there's this uh like you but know, it needs uh, to be known you need to be disgusted and you need it, it should drive a passion in you to be anti-war it, it it is, and I, I don't think you can state it any better than you just did. It's a book uh, about how atrocious and hideous and sickening war can become, and then it's also about uh, the capacity of men and women to do the most terrible things. And then when you're in, on top, and when you have won, project these crimes onto the people who lost and have no other way of protecting themselves. And for 70 years, that's all we've gotten is the allied narrative of that war, the Jewish narrative of that war, about how evil the Germans were and how terrible they treated everybody they touched. Um, like I said, I'm not an expert on that, but I can guarantee you the allied and the Jewish touch on this was as demonic and vicious and satanic as uh, any war ever fought. And we've only scratched the surface. Um, well, I'd say it's the racist Jewish rhetoric. It's I wouldn't say it's the Jewish rhetoric because I know a lot of Jewish revisionists have had him on this show, but it certainly was. It, it's a kind of a, a catch twenty two or vicious circle because the <clears throat> Allied propaganda and justification for the war becomes the Holocaust of Jews. Because without that, there's really nothing to distinguish the Nazis from the Allies. You have to have that special story of babies thrown in ovens and everything. Otherwise. You basically you got to think of something worse uh, for the Nazis than for the Allies to to make it good versus bad, and of course that's going to make Jewish people hate Germans even more, and it it feeds on itself like a cycle. But oh, I, I agree. Think, I I think probably uh, the the average Jew has been sucking this just like the average Gentile Gentile has. You well, tell a, a lie a thousand typical times. Typical identity politics. I mean everybody. Like, Let me say this, right, right. Um, this book, people have told me that it's it's life altering. They say that basically they're not the same person that sat down to read the book as the as the person who closes the book after they've read this thing. And so many people have said that that I actually am starting to believe that that this is a a book about a sea change and how we view the world around us. People are different. I just got an email a couple of days ago uh, from a good friend of mine in California and he had uh, been uh, he had been talking with a Jewish friend of his by the way a very uh, noteworthy and famous Jew here in America and elsewhere but he they had started talking somehow about World War II and then they ran onto my book and the, my friend asked the uh, uh, his Jewish friend, do you, uh, I mean, uh, do you, have you heard of it? He said, not only have I heard about it, 
I read the book. He said, I stopped being a Jew. I quit. I have officially stopped being a Jew. I'm no longer Jewish. I'm so ashamed of what was done in my name, not only during the war, but what continues to this very day, that I am no longer a Jew. And that's what... It's always like that. I just want to bring another modern example. Like, <clears throat> one of the the pretexts to invade Iraq was to save the Kurds, which was totally disingenuous because the U.S. financed the ethnic cleansing of Kurds in Turkey as recently as 1997. And then, you know, six years later, they're there to liberate the Kurds. It's always, oh, we're saving the Jews. We're saving some... You know, ethnic minority, or we went into Afghanistan for women's rights, or things that, and it's all bullshit. They go to war to slaughter people, steal their resources, and you know, make more money for the military industry. I'm, no, I'm with you. Your book is that powerful. I, it's like the scales fall from your eyes because even if I myself, I'd read Irving's books. I I knew I knew about the, those atrocities, but I had never read a book that graphically got into it like that. That which is necessary, I think, for me anyway, it really shook me, and I'm trying to do something about it. I'm interviewing you, I helped promote the film, I helped finance the film, I've, you know, lent the book out. I got the book from a German professor in Japan, he goes, you know what, you can keep it, because he knew I was in media. Um, tell people where they can purchase it. Well, there's always Amazon, Amazon.com. And uh, the books, book and the Kindle version is for sale. Also, my most recent book, which also talks about some of the things we're talking about now, except it mostly uh, sticks with the rape component. It's called Rape, Hate, Sex and Violence in War and Peace. This is also for sale on Amazon. Uh, I think they're both about 20 bucks, And then the Kindle versions, you know, they're much cheaper. Uh, or you can order them, either book from me and... Uh, Anybody abroad, and I'm assuming a lot of folks listening are abroad, it's $25. That's postage included. And uh, I'll, either book is 25 abroad and Canada. Or if you're in America, it's $20. And uh, you can order through me and my PayPal, which is MT, M as in Michael, T as in Thomas, Goodrich at AOL.com. I'll That's stick my it pay- below. I'll put all this information right below the podcast, so. Okay. And if, do you sign any books? Uh, it really starts. It gets, it gets the. So no. <laughs> it, well, no, it, it, not so much that is that it's suddenly it becomes much more expensive in the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not something I want to go back to, and okay. the wrapping up and the packaging of these things. Are, Unless you know, unless it's a special deal, I don't sign anymore. But that's no big deal. It's just a signature. Um, but. Yeah, and um, anybody who wants to just drop me a line, you don't have to buy a book. You could just uh, MT Goodrich is my also my um, my email. Hey, someone uh, else wants to do an interview. There's his email, guys. You know. Yeah, uh, but let me say this: you you hit upon a point, Ryan. That um, yeah, it strikes me well. Wars are not fought for humanitarian reasons. That we've been told that that's what they're about. In other words, just lead up to the war in Iraq. The Kuwaiti babies being thrown out of incubators. It's been proven to be an outright damn lie. But yet they use that. To prevent them from a potential slaughter. Right. They're always for motives other than humanitarian, no matter what these ghouls do. Uh, But I guess they realize that uh, since 50% of us are women and they assume that 50% of us therefore are sappy sentimentalists, I guess that's what they... But you've got to always keep in mind, the next time you hear... 
the old men pounding for war and then coming up with some sort of a humanitarian excuse or trying to stop a new Hitler. Uh, please, please, for God's sakes, think about this. Think of what we talked about today. There's well, no such think, thing. I don't share that opinion of women. I, I think that it's more of like the leftist spin is humanitarian and the right wing spin is more fear based. So the right wing will, will sell a war by saying they're going to have a mushroom cloud. They could have, you know, we can't, you know, let them get this bomb. We can't let them do this. And the left spin is we got to go in to save the certain, um, you know, ethnic group or whatever, because that's how they sell themselves domestically. There's no difference between the left and right other than how they demographically brand themselves. They're all pro-war and they're all, they all have the same monetary policy and every major issue is the same. I think it's just the, the way they brand themselves to their, uh, you know, party coffers. That's the only difference. It would seem to me also, Ryan, uh, that things are just the opposite. You you might think that it would become harder and harder to go to war. You would think they would be starting to run out of excuses. It seems to be the opposite, however. It seems to be less questioning. It seems about now wars. they don't even try and lie that well. I mean, yeah, the yeah. Iraq war was protested. They had the Niger forgeries. They had, I mean, they lied about weapons of mass destruction, knowing after the fact that they're not going to be there. And they're just so what, you know. Move on to the next one. Still in Afghanistan, still using proxy forces in Syria, invaded Libya, attacked Somalia. I mean, it's just on and on. And they're gunning for war with Iran, too. And they're, they're you know, increasing the civil war in Ukraine, too. It, it's just abysmal. But we never learned if the myths of World War II had ever broken, I don't think we'd have all these conflicts today. You're, you're, I think you're right on that. And that's the reason, that's why it's so important to know what actually occurred in World War II. Um, I think the day is looming. Certainly it, it will happen eventually unless we get a grip. But someday we're going to wake up and we are in World War III. And then all bets are off because the first nation, major nation, starts losing that war. You know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to unleash their nuclear tip missiles. And I don't think we want to wait around for that day. Because even though it may be uh, something of a uh, uh, sports hobby for a lot of people watching what war is playing today and how Americans are doing and how many uh, Muslims they are killing around the globe, when it suddenly becomes a war of equals, then we're not going to like that so well. In fact, we, have, we stand a very good chance of having our asses handed to us. That is the American, the U.S. military um, and if that happens, I'll guarantee you that they, there is not an American that will whisper, even whisper the word war for a thousand years. That's how devastating that defeat will be. And so while I we would have argue the, time, the Cold War was the Third World War because millions of people were killed in the so-called Cold War. But you know, through our proxy fighting, the Soviets and the Americans did kill millions of people already. Um, but I know what you mean. You mean like a theater like World War II where it's you know much more even technology rather than the U.S. just blowing the piss out of some third world nation. Like, But even that is damaging to the United States economically um, and, uh, you know, ruin the, um, the propaganda they had going for them after World War II. They were the heroes. And after reinvading Iraq and all these... Uh, attacks in Central America and like Grenada, which you brought up, like Grenada was going to invade the United States or something. I mean, there's just no justification for any of this. And 
because of the internet breaking the media monopoly, I think that this whole generation coming up is pretty well aware, more so than any other before, of of the crap that's on TV and the lies from government. I think things are changing, and I'm hoping we can avoid a major conflict, but uh, that's still not the reason. It shouldn't just be the fear of World War Three. It should just be simply the moral reason that we shouldn't be murdering people even if we could get away with it it's just wrong let me also finally say that um if the listeners if they if if they get a chance please see the movie that's based upon the book by kyle hunt it's a movie called hellstorm the documentary please look at this movie it's about an hour and a half long it's a digest it's a synopsis of the book itself and it's as accurate as any film can ever be made. It, it adheres word by word in some places with the book. So please, if you don't have time to read the book or the money to buy the book, look at this film. It's free we, on YouTube. We it's still just... have the time to forestall, stop World War III. Now, I consider any hot war a world war. World War hot, World War III hot war. We have time to stop this thing, folks. Let's use this time. Let's don't just uh, wring our hands and think about it and uh, then go on with uh, shopping at Walmart and watching baseball. Let's do something about it. Work for peace. Work for happiness. Work for the world. We can still do this. We don't have to wake up to World War III. Uh, I'll go out on that. That's my soapbox for the day. But uh, uh, there's no excuse. It's like you mentioned. It, we're, we're complicit in what's to come if we don't act upon the book and the movie. Hellstorm. Well, Hellstorm, without any real serious promotion, already has over 100,000 views, maybe close to 200,000 views for the lag time on YouTube, and it was only released a couple weeks ago. Um, I do encourage people to go look at that. It's also in the documentary section on ANC Report, along with other uh, movies on the same topic. Kyle Hunt and Eric Hunt, I have no relation, by the way. It's just coincidence, the last name. But And you're in the film. Um, you do some narrating. And uh, you, I guess you're an actor of sorts. <laughs> no, but I mean, no, I, no. I'm glad the disclaimer you gave in the beginning was very pertinent too, because you're saying, look, well, I'm not trying to take a balanced approach. Because if you want to see the other side, all you got to do is turn on the television. This is specifically a biased, intentionally biased view. Um, well, actually, not really. I mean, it's just a, like a you are there kind of view, saying, look, this is. This, the side you never get to hear about, and this is the only side we're going to present because we already know you've heard everything else a zillion times. They they take school children in and show them Holocaust films and things. It's, it's kind of child abuse in a way, but I mean, mm-hmm. not not that that shouldn't be known. I just don't think you need to parade it around fifth graders. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, well, I I concur. It's um, but that's the world we find ourselves in right now. And the good news is, as you mentioned. We've got the internet. We have the ability with a finger tap to have all the knowledge of mankind come up on our screen. We've got this ability to bridge continents like we're doing right now. I was on a program the other day. Um, I, I was in North America. I was talking to a host in Europe, and we had a guest come on from Asia, from Japan, actually. And uh, that's a that's a that's a miracle. But we're communicating, and that's the good news. Enough of us get together. If enough of us get together and actually want to forestall the horrible crimes that are uh, that were committed in World War II, we've got the ability. We've got the means of uh, communications. Now it's just up to us. 
We cannot heroicize these butchers, too. That's the other thing, you know. Look, like, snipers are not heroes, uh, like they tried to make this recent movie. There, there's nothing cool about shooting a bunch of people who are trying to defend their country, as in the invasion of Iraq. There's nothing cool about it. And these guys, these, Churchill and Roosevelt, these guys, these... Stalin is sort of painted as a monster, but for separate reasons. It's because of the American Cold War. They loved him at the time. Um, but these guys are not heroes, and they shouldn't be seen as, you know, these these glorious, you know, moral victors or anything. They ought to be seen for the monsters as they were. And we have to stop heroicizing militarism. It's war is hell, as Sherman admitted. And that kind of cultural change needs to happen. People need to be disgusted and never, ever want to go to war. The only reason for war is if you're attacked or about to be. There, there is no reason to have wars of choice like the U.S. does over and over and the British still do over and over. And if they knew the horrors that our own militaries commit to, I don't think it would happen. And that's why I encourage everybody to go see Hellstorm on YouTube right after this interview and then go buy the book or buy the book and then see the movie either way. Because if you can, you know. But purchasing the book, you know, allows uh, authors like Mr. Goodrich to write their next book or to make the next film. It, it helps finance all of these projects. And so I encourage you to go do that. And uh, Thomas or Michael, however you like to go by. I know your middle name's Michael. I, I, you go by Michael, right? Mm -hmm. Mike's fine, Tom. Yeah, I call you Tom because that's how it's written in the in the book. But I do appreciate your time and I appreciate all your work. And I'm, I'm looking forward... Uh, well, it's not like I'm looking forward in, in a joyous type for to see rape hate, but um, if you ever finish that book on what happened on, in the Pacific Theater to Japan, I'd be interested in reading and promoting that as well. Yeah. Hey, we're right. Thanks so much for having me. And I uh, uh, can't say it was fun, but I can, because <laughs> it's I never hope it's informative and moving. And I hope people will not be afraid to question World War II. It doesn't make you a Nazi. It doesn't make you an Italian fascist or imperial Japanese. It's not like you're agreeing with their philosophical position or anything or disagreeing or anything. You're just looking at what the Allies did and acknowledging that they did the same kind of crimes or worse. You know that That's okay. Um, we have to allow revisionism. We have to get rid of this stigma. I'm going to end it on that. And I would like to have you back later, though, to talk about um, your research into the book on Japan because we had a lot of good material off air on that, and I think that would be a nice program as well. be my pleasure, right? Okay. Guys, get the book on Amazon. There's links below, and uh, I hope more people will interview you in the future. I hope this goes viral. I hope the film goes viral, and I hope you sell a lot of books, sir. Thanks a lot. Thanks. 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 Thanks.